Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And as always this week, I am joined by Simon Elliott, the head of investment trust research at Winterflood Securities. Last week, Simon, you were up in Edinburgh talking to some clients about the prospects for investment trusts. There was a bit of gloom last week, but uh, this week, I think the markets are slightly more buoyant than some feared last week. Is that right? Well, again, it's been a little bit of a roller coaster, to be honest. I mean, the numbers are that certainly for the first four days of the week, the investment company sector was down about 0.2%, so a marginal decline, whereas the UK market in the form of the FTSE All Share was in positive territory of about 0.3%. But actually, if you look behind that, you look how things have worked day to day, then there have been some reasonable swings. So the investment company sector has been down a couple of percent on consecutive days. And actually, we've seen the sector average discount move out a little bit. It started the week about 3.7%. It reached 4.2% at one stage, and now it's probably come back into about 3.5%. So there's definitely a little discount volatility out there. And clearly, the market's key preoccupation at the moment is inflation. I think we've talked about it possibly in every single podcast we've recorded this year. And it's a story that's simply not going away. The Bank of England came out this week and noted that inflation was rising faster than expected. Certainly, the Prime Minister at the Conservative Party conference gave a speech that seemed to almost encourage inflation, certainly in in terms of wage growth. Uh, And obviously, a lot of focus on the so-called energy crisis. I mean, there has been a global surge in energy prices, and I think oil is at the highest level uh, that we've seen in seven years. And also, economic data is a little bit mixed as well. So just today, we're recording this on Friday, we've had weak jobs data uh, out of the US. Again, the market trying to guess how the Federal Reserve uh, may react to that and will we see a delay in any tapering. So lots to talk about, but I think inflation is the key thing capturing everyone's imagination at the moment. Yes, and I guess related to that is also the outlook for interest rates. Obviously, there's a direct linkage there, both in terms of uh, what the market might uh, require in terms of interest rates if inflation is coming, and also what the uh, Federal Reserve and other central banks might do. And there has been some speculation about whether or not... uh, Jay Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve in the States, will actually be reappointed by President Biden. That often doesn't help to add to some uncertainty into the into the picture. If you look back at the year so far, I mean, we talk about the performance of the investment trust sector compared to the UK market, and obviously it has underperformed this year. We've been through quite a kind of choppy year as well. We had all that optimism at the start of the year, when value stocks did very well, then we had a bit of a retread. People got a bit more pessimistic. And now we're kind of still looking for a direction, I would say. So looking at the performance of the investment trust sector year to date, before we dive into this week's announcements, last year it outperformed the UK market. This year it's underperforming. What do you think the main reasons for that are? Yeah. And again, just to put some numbers around that before we discuss the reasons, I mean, the UK market at present is up about 13% or so. So not a bad return from the UK this year, but the investment company sector is up about 7.6%. So in positive territory, but as you note, it has underperformed. I mean, the reasons for that, well, we've seen discounts widen out a little bit, but I think the real cause here is what makes up the investment company sector these days. I mean, it's probably about two thirds or so that's invested in equity, so shares, and they've probably got overall a more growth bias to it. So we spent a lot of time talking about Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, part of the Bailey Gifford stable. Um, And there are a number of investment trusts that are more on the growth tack. In addition to that, there's probably an overseas bias, to be perfectly honest. And so that was undoubtedly a bit of a headwind in the first period of the year. I think the other factors as well is that we've seen those funds with large premium ratings be derated a little bit. So we spent some time talking about some of those renewable energy infrastructure names that for one reason or another have seen their premiums erode as the year has gone on. But overall, the investment trust sector, I would suggest, is still remains in good health. I mean, the level of outperformance last year was exceptional. We've never seen anything quite like that before, certainly not in and that living memory. So this year, it's perhaps swung back the other way. But overall, I think the sector's in good health. And yes, I think the only other point to add there is that we know that the investment trust sector, or at least the index that we use to track its performance, as you say, does have a greater global and growthy bias than the UK market. And the other factor is that the UK market, in many people's views, is among the cheaper of the markets out there at the moment. And therefore, it was due a bit of perhaps of uh, 
superior performance from the UK market, and that's what we've seen this year. But anyway, we're in the business of keeping track of what's happening in the investment trust sector. And there is a bit of news this week, uh, not quite as much news as uh, some other weeks, to be fair. But uh, let's kick off with Aberdeen Emerging Markets Investment Company, ticker AEMC, and its fellow Aberdeen Investment Trust, Aberdeen New Tie Investment Trust, ticker ANW. We knew already that they were going to be merged, or perhaps you should describe that as a takeover by Aberdeen Emerging Markets or Aberdeen New Tie. But uh, what's the update this week on that particular situation, Simon? Well, as you correctly say, we learned about this deal back at the end of July, actually. So fast forward a few months, and they've now published the circular, which is a legal document that effectively gives us all the nuts and bolts of the particular deal and sets out the timetable. So just to surmise, as you correctly say, Aberdeen Emerging Markets Investment Company is a kind of ongoing vehicle. Aberdeen New Tie will be rolled into that. They're going to adopt a Chinese mandate. Aberdeen have got a 13-strong Chinese equities team in Shanghai and Hong Kong, and so an experienced team. And this ongoing vehicle will be focused on Chinese equities with about probably about 60% or so in the China-A-share market. Um, they're also investing in smaller companies. But it we renamed, relabeled Aberdeen, no vowels, China Investment Company. There'll also be a tender offer as well. So that's up to 15% of the shares initial at a 2% discount to fair asset value. That's for uh, Aberdeen Emerging Markets Investment Company. And effectively, there is a cash exit for Aberdeen New Tie on the same kind of level, so 15%. The results of the tender offer for Aberdeen Emerging Markets Investment Company will be announced on the 2nd of November. They need shareholder approval on the 26th of October in order to do that. And the timings on the Aberdeen New Tie Fund uh, well, elections for either cash or rollover have to be made by the 28th of October. They need shareholder approval at a general meeting on the 9th of November. That requires a 75% approval. And then the effective date is that same day, 9th of November. So that kind of gives us the timescale when these two funds will be merged. Right. So that's the timescale. Let's just talk about the reality behind this particular merger. I don't suppose there'll be any problem in this one going through. Well, I suppose there'll be some interest in the take-up of the tender offer. I was looking through the list of Aberdeen Trusts this morning, and I noticed that of all the 14 that they have at the moment, I think that's the right number, Aberdeen New Tie has got the worst performance record over recent years. So it has struggled a little bit, and indeed a number of these single-country investment trusts have gone out of favour. But what's happening to the share prices and the ratings of these two trusts as we approach this likely merger? Well, they're still both trading on discounts. So certainly at the close of Thursday, Aberdeen New Time was on about a 7.5% discount to its NAV. And Aberdeen Emerging Markets probably on about a 10% discount or so. Um, and both those levels represent a level tighter than we've seen over on average over the previous 12 months. So it's about 13% for Aberdeen Emerging Markets and about 10% for Aberdeen New Time. So in other words, they've been positively re-rated, but to an extent. But I think clearly the hope from Aberdeen is that by putting these two investment trusts together and changing the mandate, they will create new demand. Uh, and there was talk in the announcement that there is a placing program for up to 25 million shares uh, that's going to run to October next year. Of course, this is not a great time for Chinese-focused investment trusts. The three big ones in that sector have all been dramatically, I would say, almost uh, underperforming in recent months because of what's been going on in China. Do you think that's going to have an effect on how this particular combination goes? Or will it be more a case of uh, people thinking that actually this might be quite a good opportunity to get into China, given how much those markets have sold off this year? Yeah, you make a good point, actually. I mean, it's been a tough year for emerging markets, full stop, Asia and emerging markets. And, and obviously, China's probably been the swing factor. So again, just to put some numbers on that, Last year, we saw the Chinese market up 26%. So clearly, in terms of the pandemic and COVID-19, China was obviously first in, but obviously first out as well. And they saw the rebound in their markets. This year, it's been a, a different story. So if you look at the MSCI China index, for instance, it's down 16% this year. So that's a material underperformance of worldwide equities. The MSCI world index is up about 15%. So that's really dragged down Asia. It's really dragged down emerging markets in general. And funnily enough, those uh, investment trusts focus on China have struggled. Their ratings, again, just to put some numbers on it, the Bailey Gifford China Fund, that's on about a 3% discount. Fidelity China on about a 9% discount. 
and the JP Morgan Fund on a 7% discount. But it wasn't that long ago that all three were trading on premium ratings, actually. Uh, and those discount levels represent levels far wider than we've seen on average over the previous 12 months. Now, as I recall, Aberdeen Utah is not a particularly large investment trust. There's not a lot of assets in there. So what will be the impact on uh, Aberdeen Emerging Markets, or as we will now call it, Aberdeen, a China investment company, uh, in its new guise? What do you think the potential size of that is, uh, A, if there is no take-up of the tender offer, and B, if there is a full take-up of the tender offer? My estimate is that Aberdeen New Tie has assets about £74 million at the moment. Uh, Aberdeen Emerging Markets probably about 370 something around there. So let's do the maths. And I know you'll always like give me a bit of a maths challenge on a Friday afternoon, but that's you know 445 somewhere around there, broadly speaking. Well, if you factor in the 15% tender off, and that's just for the moment, assume it's fully taken up, then the combined entity will have assets of around 370, 375 million. So That's a relatively decent-sized investment trust, I would suggest. And if you look at the China peer group and see how they fare at the moment, in asset terms, the Bailey Gifford Fund's on about 240 or so million, the JP Morgan one on about 500, over 500 billion. And it's the Fidelity China Fund that's really the big boy in the room with assets of about 2.2, 2.3 billion. But certainly the Aberdeen China Investment Company will have a, a decent start to its life with that kind of asset base. So still in the emerging markets area, let's move on and talk about the developments at uh, Genesis Emerging Markets, as was, that's ticker GSS. As we know, the Genesis Emerging Markets board was given the mandate for this trust to Fidelity. And uh, that was quite a dramatic change uh, for such a large trust. But in any event, this has now gone live. The shares no longer trade under the ticker of GSS, but now trade under the new Fidelity Emerging Markets ticker F-E-M-L, and that has been the case since Tuesday this week. So can you give us an update on how this all got to this point, uh, Simon, given what we knew before and what we now know? Yeah, so this has been quite an interesting one, as you correctly say, that the board had appointed Fidelity, but the kind of development a week or two ago was that Genesis Investment Manager, so the outgoing uh, investment manager, put out a letter suggesting that they had put on the table a proposal whereby shareholders could get full liquidity and noted that in this particular instance, there was only a 25% tender offer on the table, which is a slightly unusual intervention. I think we discussed that in a podcast a couple of weeks ago, but it raised the question, what would actually happen when it came to the vote for shareholder approval? Well, we know the answer to that because that actually happened Friday last week. Obviously, given the name change, all the rest of it, it did go through. Shareholders did vote in favour. However, almost 29 million shares were voted against the change of investment objective. And that was equivalent to about 28% or so of the shares voted. So a significant amount. Uh, But it didn't derail the appointment of Fidelity and this 25% tender offer. I think uh, I've heard some noises about this. That sounds dramatic, but I think the shareholding that voted against it was just one shareholder, I believe, and that was a large institutional shareholder, which has been involved in Genesis Emerging Markets for a number of times, and I think they had a specific objective by voting against. But it hasn't derailed the process, so this trust is now under new management, Fidelity Emerging Markets, and, uh, well, what's happened since it actually started trading this week under its new name? Well, early days, I think we can all agree on that. But it's trading on about a 6 or a 7% discount. They have published what they call an introductory note from Nick Price, who's the new co-portfolio manager, who pointed out that Fidelity team had been working hard in the background over the past few weeks to ensure an orderly transition and just reiterated the differentials of this particular investment trust. So it's going to use long and short derivatives. So this is going to be a little bit different from its other emerging markets funds in that subsector, uh, although it made the point that overall exposure to the market will be kept relatively conservative uh, and net gearing is unlikely to exceed the broad index by more than a few percent. Perhaps unsurprisingly, it will take a a few weeks to kind of realign the portfolio and then obviously give us an update or all the shareholders an update as and when that process is complete. But they also said they'll be able to invest in smaller companies as well, which are those with a market cap below 5 billion US dollars, as well as private companies. So that'll be something to watch going forward. How differentiated is this new mandate uh, under Fidelity 
from what you would expect to see either in their open-ended fund or from some of the other investment trusts that uh, operate in emerging markets? So in terms of the other investment trusts in their peer group, the vast majority will be what we call long-only equity funds. So basically, that's a kind of standard investment approach. There will be a very small number that might use derivatives to take short positions. So my recollection is that BlackRock Frontiers, for example, can and has used derivatives to a limited extent in the past. But I think that aside, Fidelity Emerging Markets is doing something quite different from its peers. And it'd be interesting to see how that plays out in practice. In addition to that, your point about how does it uh, compare with other mandates that the Fidelity investment team will be involved with? um, Well, they do have a track record in this respect. So they are used to this. This is not the first time they've uh, embraced this strategy. However, I think the reason why they're kind of making the point about private companies and investing down the size scale, i.e. smaller companies, is that will be the point of difference um, from their uh, existing mandates. Okay, so we can move on from that. It's uh, always good to see some change. It shows that boards are at least being active in looking after the interests of their shareholders. I think, as we discussed before, it's still somewhat surprising to see a trust of this size, whose record is not that bad over many years, but has not been particularly inspiring. Change hands, but there it is. So let's move on and talk about fundraising, where this has been an interesting week uh, from the fundraising point of view. We've got a couple of new proposed fundraisings, uh, but we've also got uh, a couple which have failed to get off the ground. And that's the first time we've said that for a week or two, that's for sure, while this uh, surge in uh, funding has been going on. Let's start off with uh, Greencoat Renewables. You mentioned renewable infrastructure already, but GRP is the ticker. And what have they said about uh, fundraising? So they announced a 12-month share issuance program for up to 400 million new shares at an initial placing at a price of €1.11. And that's a discount to their closing share price on Friday and about a 10% premium to their NAV at the end of June. That initial placing closes on the 18th of October with those new shares, should they be successful, to begin trading on the 29th of October. And they'll be entitled to their uh, Q3 dividend as well. As always, we get a bit of detail in terms of their pipeline, which includes in this particular instance, wind and solar assets in Ireland and continental European markets. And just to remind people, Greencoat Renewables, essentially it's um, wind, but it's not solely wind. So they can invest in solar as well. Most of the portfolio is exposed to Ireland at the moment, but they do have um, some investments in France and Finland, I think, at present. Uh, they also made the point that gearing is currently about 48% or so, and their intention is to keep it within about 40 to 60% range. But they have a shareholder vote on this issuance program. That'll be at an EGM on the 28th of October. So just in broad terms, how does this particular proposed placing and share issuance program, in terms of the kind of discount and the premium to NAV, compare with some of the others that have raised money recently? Is that something we can uh, read anything into or is it all just much more of the same? Well, as is in the vast majority of cases, issuance is at a premium to NAVs. Those premium levels will vary. I'm just trying to think in the kind of renewable infrastructure space, there is a range, clearly, I would say. I'm just trying to think in recent times, we've rarely seen anything below 5% and probably uh, high single digits is far more common. We have seen other mechanisms for raising money as well, because invariably what happens, and I think we did talk about this last week, when they come to issue new shares, it's at a discount to the share price, um, which is obviously might act as an incentive for some people to get involved. Though equally, there'll be other shareholders who perhaps get a little bit disgruntled by this because it's a headwind for the share price to progress. Um, so there are different ways of doing this. So rather than stipulating that your issuance will be at a particular premium level, you can do things such as accelerated book build. So effectively let the market determine the price given the amount of money that you want to raise. In this case, they've said a 10% premium. I don't think that's massively out of line with what we've seen in recent months for this kind of fund. But it's helpful that they've actually explained that the latest NAV at 30th September is expected to be broadly in line with that at 30th of June, because otherwise one of the problems we've seen is that quite often with these alternative asset trusts, the NAVs are quite a long way out of date by the time you're actually doing one of these issues, two or three months out of date sometimes. So I guess that will be helpful. This trust, I think I'm right in saying, is a euro-denominated trust, is it not? You mentioned the placing price was in euros. Do you think that will be uh, an inhibitor to this kind of uh, offering? 
I don't think so. You know, there was a time when people perhaps struggled with share classes that were not sterling denominated, i.e. they were euro or US dollar. I think most people are, are, are quite relaxed and comfortable with that. It's worth noting that this particular investment company is listed on the Euronex growth market of Euronex doubling, but it's also traded on AIM as well. And as I said, the portfolio certainly has a kind of European Union flavour to it. So with the revenue that's been generated coming through in euros, quite obviously, then it's probably no bad thing that there isn't a mismatch of currencies here. Okay, so let's move on and talk about supermarket income REIT, uh, ticker SUPR. They're also raising some new money. And uh, what are the details of that one? Well, to be fair, I think we talked about this last week, uh, that they were looking to raise this money. It's £100 million that they're targeting. But actually what they've said this week is that there will be, as part of that, an offer for subscription via primary bid, the primary bid platform we've talked about a number of times. And again, that will be at the issue price of 115p per share. That represents a 4% discount to the closing share price on the 29th of September. That was just ahead of the original announcement. And it will be at a premium to the NAV as well. But this enables or allows private investors an opportunity, should they see it that way, to participate. But we'll get to find out how this goes uh, towards the end of the month. The primary bid is now open and will close on the 18th of October. There's a minimum subscription level of £1,000 per investors and aggregate demand will be limited to £10 million. And uh, should that all be successful, the new shares are expected to begin trading on the specialist fund segment on the 22nd of October. Yes, just on that last point about primary bid, which I think is doing an interesting job trying to raise money directly from private investors who might otherwise miss out on these kind of share issues. I did notice with one of their recent offers that uh, the primary bid offer was oversubscribed very quickly and they uh, actually closed it. So you had to be quite quick out of the blocks in order to take advantage. And indeed, if they were oversubscribed, then there's always a danger of being scaled back, of course. Let's talk about some fundraising that hasn't happened. I mean, as I said, this is quite uh, has been quite rare in recent weeks. We've we had one or two notable failures to launch earlier in the year or end of last year. But uh, tell us what's been happening, for example, with uh, BMO's Responsible Housing REIT, uh, which I think was proposing to raise money and is now not doing so. That's absolutely right. They were looking to raise, I think their target was about £250 million. That was closing on the 1st of October, so just a week ago. Uh, And unfortunately for them, it appears that they didn't get the kind of critical mass they required to get that deal over the line. I mean, there's a clue in the title. It's a responsible housing REIT. So it's very much on that kind of social housing tack. They made the point that they were differentiated from other social housing funds that are already out there by the length of the leases. They were kind of tailored those to align them to the length of the care provision. So trying to get away from this idea of these 25-year index-linked leases that have caught the headlines recently, in particular in the case of Civitas. So a disappointment for BMO, undoubtedly, and unfortunately kind of follows on the heels of the Acon income deal, which kind of moved away from them as well a couple of months ago. So that will be more disappointment there. So you mentioned the Civitas social housing. We talked a lot about that, obviously, uh, in the last couple of weeks. But first of all, what's happened to the share price of Civitas social housing this week, ticker CSH? And do you think that the issues that have been surrounding Civitas have had something to do with the fact that this particular social housing uh, launch, even though it was designed to be differentiated, uh, has not succeeded? Do you think there's any uh, relationship there? Yes, in a nutshell. I suspect you're absolutely right. That's not to say that all the crosses that Civitas have to bear or kind of questions they have to answer were directly relevant to the BMO fund. Um, I don't think they were. And they were quite clear in terms of differentiating themselves, as I mentioned, not least on that length of leases. However, I think there is a question marker over the social housing sector at the moment for understandable reasons. And we are still waiting to hear back from the board of Civitas Social Housing. They've made it clear that they refute the points made by Shadowfall, the short seller, in that quite long letter that got published a week or two ago. But as yet, we have not received that detailed response. So there is a little bit of a a vacuum there. So if you look at the share price of Civitas this week, I've got it on my screen about 88p or so at the moment. But just in intraday trading during the week, I mean, it's reached a low of, uh, I'm going to say about 85, 85.5p. And again, just to put some context around that, I mean, it was only back in early August that this fund was trading nearly on about 121p. So um, it's fallen some way since then. And it's also had some contagious effect, you might say, on triple point social housing as well. Would that be fair? Well, triple point social housing at the moment, certainly the close of Thursday, the share price closed on that fund at 94p. 
that represents about a 10, 11% discount to its NAV. And again, just to put that in context, over the previous 12 months, it's trading on a small premium of about 0.3% on average. So in other words, we have seen a derating for that one as well. So troubles in that particular sector of the market. Tell us about the other proposed investment trust launch that has been pulled, as we say in the jargon. This is Blackfinch Renewable European Income, another one with income in euros. Uh, What's the story there? Yeah, well, they were looking to IPO and they were targeting, I think, 300 million at launch. And again, that was meant to close on the 1st of October, so just a week ago. And yet again, one that hasn't clearly got across the line. I think, according to media reports, there is an intention to come back to have another go and we'll see how that plays out. But uh, they'll obviously be very disappointed, as the name would suggest. Perhaps they were targeting investment in wind, solar, hydro and uh, well, hydrogen assets as well with a name to kind of pay a dividend within three years of about 6%, a yield of 6% or so. So they will clearly, as I mentioned, be disappointed. But it's an interesting one. When you look at it in the context of the sector this year, I mean, by our numbers, we think there's been about £10.3 billion raised across the investment company sector in the first nine months of the year. Now, that's 155% higher than for the equivalent period last year and up 64% on the first nine months of 2019. So 2021 is turning out to be a very, very strong year for fundraising across the investment company sector in general, and that's dominated by infrastructure and property funds. However, that said, if you actually look at IPOs, we've only seen eight so far this year, two now we've just talked about that have fallen over. There are other instances throughout the year. And I think it just goes to show that it's incredibly difficult to actually get investment companies up and running Um, The kind of critical mass that you need on day one to ensure that these things are viable is not easy. And the fundraising that we're seeing this year has really come from those investment companies that have been up and running for a number of years, have a proven track record or dividend history, and have been able to come back to the market again and raise additional capital. Uh, But for the IPO side of of the sector, it's difficult. So do you think this is a question just simply of indigestion, if you like? There's uh, too much of this stuff coming to the market uh, and it has to have some particularly differentiating features to get away or is it perhaps that uh, in these cases I mean they were both looking to raise quite significant sums maybe they just set their sights too high? No it's a good point I think the way I would answer that is that if you go to an investor and they have a choice between an existing investment company that they're familiar with they may not have even invested you know first time round with but they can see that there's a track record versus a, a brand new company Um, that's invariably going to be smaller and therefore less liquid and raise issues on that front, they will go for the existing fund. It's easier to kind of follow your money or back an existing fund. So we always say in terms of IPO is the kind of the first 100 million or first 200 million, whatever it is that you raise, is the most difficult fundraise to get away. In terms of the actual quantum, well, you know, we've seen some existing investment companies raise quite a lot of money. So just in the last month, and we've talked about this in recent weeks, Home REIT raised £350 million which was, uh, you know, they were targeting about 260. So some way north, we saw any number of infrastructure funds and property funds for that matter have oversubscribed fundraising. So I think there is money out there for these existing investment companies, but there's just a a general wariness. And it might be fatigue. I think you make a good point for new ideas that the bar to get over to get a new idea up and running for an IPO is, is much higher. Indeed it is. So let's move on and talk about some results. We might actually kick off given that we've been talking about uh, IPOs and so on, by talking about uh, Schroeder British Opportunities, that's ticker SBO, because this was a trust which, as I recall, was only launched recently and it only just got to the the starting gate, so to speak, but it has actually got a foothold now in the market. And uh, what have their annual results been like? What have they had to say? It's worth noting, actually, that these are annual results, but actually, to your point, they only came to the market back in December last year, so the 1st of December to be precise. These are results from that time, effectively, to the the 30th of June, so it's a a relatively short period. In that time, they generated an NAV return of about 10.6%, and that largely reflects the performance of their listed holdings and also an uplift to one of their private companies, a company called Rapid, which had a, a funding round, so they were able to revalue it upwards. But just to take a step back, just to remind people what this one does, as, as I mentioned, it came to the market in December last year, it raised £75 million, it just got across the line. But it's effectively, it's a hybrid approach. So investing public companies, so those listed companies, and also private companies. But it's very much focused on what they 
deemed to be high quality, high growth UK companies with sustainable business models. And, and obviously they look to invest at attractive valuations. So it's still very early days. Um, it was managed by uh, two gentlemen called Rory Bateman, who is the head of equities at Schroeder's, and Tim Creed, who's the head of UK and Europe private equity. So you've kind of got the twin disciplines and it's very much a partnership. Uh, and actually, we caught up with both of them this week as they talked through the, the holdings. And I can honestly say they're both very passionate about the concept. Just to put this into context, I mean, Rory Bateman is responsible for over 160 billion sterling. So in some ways, a £75 million investment trust or £80 million, wherever it is at the moment, is pretty small beer. But they're clearly very excited about what they can do with this. At the end of June, the portfolio only consisted of about 35 holdings. So it's very concentrated, of which 29 are public, six are private. But those private companies represent about 32% of the portfolio. And the idea is in time that this will be 50-50 public to private. And they're clearly very excited and very passionate about Uh, what they can achieve with this strategy. And the board noted in the results that they hope to grow this company through issuance. And as they put it, there is an interesting pipeline of opportunities. Indeed. It's interesting, of course, that Schroeder is also now responsible for the old Woodford Patient Capital Trust, which also is a public-private kind of approach. But this is different in what sort of way? I mean, it has obviously it's very much focused on small and growing British companies. But do you think there's room for both of these vehicles in the in the sector? I mean, I think what it's worth noting is that they're quite different portfolios at the moment. So obviously, you're right, you know, Schroeder's are responsible for both. And actually, Tim Creed is involved in both of those investment trusts. However, the UK public private fund, so the old Woodford fund as was, has much more of a healthcare flavour to it at the moment. Uh, I suspect that will change in time. And it also has invested in a lot of earlier stage companies, whereas the Schroeder British Opportunities Fund, they're investing in companies that are, well, for start, publicly listed companies, as mentioned, but also private companies that have got a few more air miles, kind of there's more proof of concept in there. And they made it clear that they're avoiding venture, uh, so those early stage companies and healthcare in their presentation as well. Right. So they're in a way sort of complementary to that extent. It was a good first six months, up 10%. That's always a good start. What about the rating? They're trading around par, I think. But do you think they're going to have a chance to raise some more money quite soon or will they have to wait a little bit longer to prove the concept, so to speak? You make a good point. I mean, we'll find out is the answer. There was a period where the share price lagged a little bit, the NAV growth, and now it's caught up. And as you note, it's on a you know about 1% premium or so. But I, I think in general, there is demand for investment trust companies that can access private companies. I mean, we've talked a lot about Chrysalis Investments, for instance, part now of the Jupiter stable, which is different. Again, it's just focused on private companies, but that's gone from quite a modest start to a significantly large investment company now. And again, referring back to the call with Tim and Rory earlier this week, I mean, Rory was very clear about the opportunity set that exists here. And, you know, they need obviously more capital to really exploit that. And that's clearly their ambition for this investment trust. Okay, so let's move on and talk about some other results. And uh, let's move overseas, first of all, and talk about Henderson Eurotrust, ticker HNE. They've had some results out to the 31st of July. In which time their NAV total return was up about 22%. That compared with the FTSE World Europe index, that was up about 26.5%. So a slight underperformance. Uh, But actually in share price total return, they came in at uh, just short of 26%, so much nearer. And that was a reflection of the fact the discount narrowed slightly in the period. So that relative underperformance, that came in the second half of the year, and basically, as they put it, the reopening beneficiaries performed strongly. They also had a significant exposure to the gaming industry, which detracted. And also they were probably a little bit underweight, the more cyclical names. So it's just worth taking a step back at this stage. So this is run by Jamie Ross, who took this portfolio on, I think, about October 2018. So he's been involved for about three years now. And he is a growth investor. So clearly when value and more cyclical names come in favour, that's probably not really going to work for him quite so well. But since he took over the fund over that three-year period, I think the numbers have been good. And clearly last year when when growth was more in favour, that certainly helped his uh, investment approach. So just to put some numbers over that, over the last three years in NAV terms, Henderson Eurotrust is up 45%, and that compares with 34% for the FTSE Europe XUK index. Yeah, so there have been a number of people have been saying that Europe looks an attractive or more attractive destination 
recently. But uh, if you look at the sector as a whole, still trading on a discount. And uh, how does this particular trust fit into that uh, spectrum? So I've got it on about a 10% discount or so at the moment. That's a little bit wider than the average for the subsector. So probably about 6 to 7%. Um, and there's a real range, actually. So you've got BlackRock, Greater Europe, which is on a 2% premium at the moment. I think they've been issuing shares as well. And they've certainly performed quite well. You've also got the Bailey Gifford Fund, Bailey Gifford European Growth, just on a very small discount, probably less than 1%. But then you've got uh, the JP Morgan Fund. So JP Morgan European, which has got two share classes, growth and income, that's probably on a double digit discount. And then you've got Alexander Darwell's European Opportunities that we talked about on a number of occasions, and that's on about 11% discount as well. So there's quite a range of ratings across this subsector. And potentially some value in there, one might think, if those who think that Europe is due for a bit of relative performance, that might be in some area to look at. Let's go back and talk about something quite different, which is in uh, overseas to some extent, but it's really in the flexible investment sector, and that is the Ruffer Investment Company. This is one of these... Uh, multi-asset investment trusts that can be used as a one-stop shop if they are so minded and you share their view on the world. Tell us about their results. So they announced annual results to the end of June, in which time they generated an NAV total return of about 15.3%. In share price terms, it was even better. Actually, the share price total return came in at 19.5%. And they made the point that since the fund's launch in July 2004, They've generated an annualised total return of 7.9%. And again, when you're trying to make uh, absolute returns with low volatility, that's exactly where they're trying to come in at. They talk about all-weather investing. And in fact, their all-weather portfolio contains what they describe as anti-fragile assets. The idea being that they benefit from any market volatility. But I've got to say, if you just wish to read one report and accounts this week, this would be the one I would highlight. Ruffer always writes write an excellent report. And again, going back to our comments earlier, it's really inflation uh, that's captured their imagination. A lot of concern over inflation, and that's reflected in the portfolio's high exposure to real assets. They do have equity risk there, and they're very much focused on value, cyclicals, commodities, and financials. It's about 40% in equities this year, and there has been a rotation to what they call delightfully dull uh, defensive companies. There's also a bit of chat about their play on cryptocurrency. This did capture the media headlines earlier in the year. They basically got involved with Bitcoin and did quite well out of it, actually. They bought it because they thought it would be, again, one of these assets that performed in a slightly different way. Uh, and they sold it in April, which um, I'm not sure if it was quite the peak, but it wouldn't probably been too far off. Which And it contributed 515 basis points to their total return. They also have quite a large weighting in index-linked bonds, about 30% or so, uh, and also UK index-linked gilts as well. But it's a, as I say, it's a great report. In fact, um, just a mention of the chairman there, Christopher Russell, he took over it towards the end of last year. And uh, while I think it's probably true that some chairman's reports feel a little formulaic, dare I say they might not have been too involved in actually writing them. In the case of Christopher Russell's, you do feel that he has been involved and actually is quite passionate about what Ruffer Investment Company is trying to achieve. Yes, it's certainly a very good read. And I made some comments on it, actually, in this week's Moneymaker's Circle offering for those who are subscribers to that. As you said before, there's a lot of debate about inflation. Is it going to be transitory or not? But I think it's pretty clear which camp that Ruffer is in. They are definitely in the inflation is coming camp. And they have been in that camp for some time, to be fair, over several years. And they were probably premature in that, uh, which contributed to the Ruffer investment company going sideways for a couple of years. And some people saying they've lost their touch, but they've uh, come back strongly in the last couple of years, partly helped by such um, what do I call kind of tactical masterstrokes as jumping in and out of Bitcoin as they did. That was very successful. But they have a lot of interesting philosophical points to make as well about Bitcoin. Unlike, for example, Capital Gearing, who very much dismissed Bitcoin as just a sign of our times, something they would never invest in. I think Ruffer takes a, a different view. So if you're interested in those kind of issues, you should certainly have a look at the annual report of the Ruffer Investment Company. Now we can move on to some specialist trusts. We talked about Greencoat Renewables, but now we can talk about Bluefield Solar Income Fund, ticker BSIF, which is one of the more established and older renewable energy companies that you were talking about before, Simon. And they've had their annual results out. 
That's right. Annual results to the end of June. Their NAV was down a little bit, actually. It dropped from about 117p to just short of 116p. But actually, the dividends were increased, went from 7.9p to 8p. So they had an NAV total return of 5.8%, although the share price total return came in at negative 3.8% as their premium contracted a little bit. But uh, yes, a lot of chat about uh, power prices, uh, as you might imagine, and uh, in terms of the power price forecasts and how they were lower in June than they had been. But also they benefited from some asset life extensions uh, and acquisitions as well. So this is a case, particularly on the asset life extensions, and we've seen this on a few of the renewable infrastructure plays, whereby if you can extend out the life of your assets, it effectively has a positive impact on your uh, NAV. So as a result of acquisitions and these extensions, the average portfolio life uh, increased from 27.4 years to 30.2. So that helped as well. Obviously, the tax rate increase would have acted as a headwind. But a lot of chat about uh, the fundraising and how they've deployed that capital. And they also made mention of the fact that they changed their investment policy. Uh, And again, we talked about this one before. So even though it's Bluefield Solar Income, shareholders have approved uh, investment outside solar infrastructure assets. So they can invest in wind and energy storage. And in fact, since the end of June, they have invested in their maiden wind investment. They deployed about £63 million or so. Uh, and it'd be interesting to see how that side of the portfolio builds up over time. Yes, and in terms of how this trust has been trading, it's still on a premium, but uh, it, the premium has come in quite a long way from where it was at its peak, which I think was just before the pandemic kicked in uh, last year. So how does their rating look now, and how does that compare to others in the sector? So I've got them on an 8% premium at the moment. That compares with an average probably nearer to about 13% over the previous 12 months. 8% is still pretty respectable, actually, compared with the peer group. Probably on average, it's somewhere between 6 and 8%. So they were at the kind of top end of that average range, though obviously there is quite a spectrum there. But you're right. I mean, as we discussed earlier, we have seen premiums contract, i.e. come down over this year for those renewable energy infrastructure names. Another way perhaps of saying that is that you know, as this sector has expanded, you do have to look a lot more carefully at uh, what each uh, individual trust has got to offer because there are some differences between them, not just in what they do, but also in the way that they uh, calculate their NAVs and so on. I might just make one point there, which is, I mean, one of the things that people might find strange is that um, you know, we know that energy prices have been rising pretty rapidly, but at the same time, a lot of these renewable energy trusts have been reducing their long-term power price forecasts. So that might be slightly confusing for some people. Can you perhaps uh, explain why that might be the case? I mean, the long-term power forecasts are less volatile than the kind of spot power prices that are talked about by the media at the moment. Obviously, we've seen a spike, as we mentioned earlier. So they are not kind of live pricing. They look at this periodically. uh, And these long-term power forecasts, they run out over a number of years, in fact, in decades So their movement is a lot less than you'll see from the spot pricing. So even though there might be a short-term squeeze on power prices, that's not necessarily reflected uh, in terms of these funds' valuation in the short term. Though over the longer term, it remains to be seen exactly where energy pricing goes. I mean, it's a subject of much debate, and obviously it depends an awful lot on supply in general. Yes, I think one can also say that over the course of history, certainly over my time in the markets. I mean, when you get these short-term energy price rises, a dramatic one sometimes, uh, but of course the effect of that is to reduce demand and then therefore there tends to be a kind of cycle whereby the higher the prices go, the more demand comes down, the more people invest in energy efficiency and so on. And so they kind of revert over time and the supply and demand cycle uh, brings things back into balance. But in general terms, I mean, if you actually were sitting there as a shelter and you thought, well, okay, energy prices are going up. I should be investing in things that are involved in that. Would a renewable energy investment trust be a good way to do that? Uh, Without making any investment recommendations, obviously. But uh, I think in general, if you wanted to play power prices, there are better ways of doing it than looking at renewable energy infrastructure funds. I mean, as I mentioned, there is a relationship clearly with the long-term direction of energy prices, but there will be a lot better kind of pure plays out there. And again, I'm not going <laughs> to make any uh, investment recommendations, but as I say, probably not through these vehicles. The, these vehicles are kind of long-term income generators. That's the idea. So you look at Bluefield Solar Income, it's got a yield of 
uh, about 6.4% at the moment. And, you know, I'd suggest to you that to most investors, that will be one of the key uh, attractions of getting involved rather than playing power prices. Indeed. And that was the point I was driving at, really, that their performance won't be directly linked to the way that uh, energy prices are moving in the in the shorter term. So we can move on and talk about uh, BMO Real Estate Investments, ticker B-R-E-I. BMO obviously has a wide range of funds in its uh, mandate. We've talked about a couple of them that have perhaps in the investment trust world not gone quite the way they wanted, but this is a very different animal. This is a commercial property trust. And uh, what have they had to say about their latest results, uh, Simon? So these are annual results to the end of June. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of about 9.1%. They paid dividends of 3.175p, and that was a 121% covered by earnings. Share price terms actually even stronger results. So it was, they were up about uh, 33%, and that compared to a rise of 6.5% for the MSCI UK Quarterly Property Index. So again, this is the idea of commercial property bouncing back. We, we saw uh, these funds derated quite heavily last year, uh, and this year there's been a process of discounts narrowing. Though it's worth noting in the case of this fund, the BMO Real Estate Investments, it's still on a, on a discount of about 24%. But a lot of detail in terms of how the underlying performance is going. Their performance in this period, this 12-month period, was driven by industrial assets. They were up 18%. And in fact, they now represent about 47% of the portfolio, and they may even uh, increase that further. Rent collection overall came in at 97%. So I would suggest to you that's probably a little bit higher than we've seen on average across the commercial property in general. And again, the vacancy rate came in at just above 4%. Uh, and that was lower than the market average of about 8%. So they're still taking a step back from the high street. They've made strategic sales of high street retail, and they're sitting with a bit of cash at the end of June as well, about £17 million or so. So finally, under results, there's not many results this week, but in comparison with some other weeks, we come on to ICG Enterprise, ticker ICGT, which sits in the private equity sector. A lot of talk about the private equity sector at the moment. And if you believe what they're saying, it's a great time for the private equity trusts. But we only stick to facts and results here. And tell us about their latest results for this particular trust. So this was uh, interim results for the six months to the end of July. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of just over 11% or so. In share price terms, it came in about 13.7%. And and just to put that into context, the FTSE All share was up 12.6% in that period. Though it's worth noting, actually, year to date, the share price is up about 25% or so, and that compares to a rise of 13% for the UK market. So they have significantly outperformed in share price terms so far this year. But in this period in question, the portfolio return on a local currency basis, so just ignoring any currency moves, came in about 15%. So they make quite a strong onus on their defensive growth portfolio. This used to be the old graphite fund, graphite enterprise. It moved to ICG a number of years ago. So they have what they call their high conviction portfolios. It's probably about half the portfolio now that either ICG originated investments or those that they've made are on a co-investment basis, in other words, they're directed, and then the rest of the portfolio is invariably through primary funds. So those private equity funds run by different managers that they've made commitments to. But during this period, the technology sector, their exposure there worked very well for them. They had holdings in Visma and IRI, which uh, did well. Uh, And they also saw some strong realisations, actually. So realisation proceeds totaled £175 million in the period, and that included 34 full exits, generating a 26% uplift to carrying value and a 2.8 times multiple to cost. So again, to your point about private equity, and this is consistent, we're seeing this from a number of these listed private equity funds, that investment activity overall this year seems to be good. Investment activity levels are high, uh, and we're seeing some, some good uplifts on realisations. So we've talked before about the difference between some of the private equity trusts, those that invest into funds and those that invest directly. Uh, who should we be thinking about comparing ICG Enterprise to in that context? We categorise it in a kind of fund of funds, so private equity fund of funds subsector alongside such funds as BMO Private Equity, Harbourvest, Global Private Equity, Pantheon International and Standard Life Private Equity. Although it's worth noting, they all do something slightly different. So as I mentioned, ICG Enterprises is a bit of a hybrid fund. You've got the, as I said, the half of the portfolio in those high conviction investments where they're actually directing the investments themselves. 
Whereas something like a Harbour Vest and a Pantheon, it's a genuine kind of fund of funds. There are some co-investments in those cases as well. And equally, Standard Life and BMO Private Equity, they do have some co-investments there as well. So they're all slightly different, but in general, they're in that kind of fund of funds sector. And to your point about the valuations and the discounts, it's that particular area where we're seeing still relatively wide discounts. So ICG is probably on about a 22% discount at the moment, Pantheon 25%, Harbourvest 24%, 22% on Standard Life. So these are all quite wide discount levels compared with the wider investment company sector. And that remains a source of frustration both to uh, some of those private equity trusts and also to some of the investors in those trusts. And uh, one or two of them we've seen making a lot of noise about being better at communicating and taking other steps to bring in the discount. At this stage of the cycle, that seems quite a good idea. But as we've discussed before, there's still quite a lot of resistance. It doesn't seem to be having that much effect on general levels of discounts in this sector. Am I exaggerating a little bit there? Well, no, I think you make a good point, actually. I mean, it is a source of frustration. It's a question of what can be done about it. I mean, I think all those funds I've mentioned have all stepped up their investor relations and their marketing efforts. And I think some of them are actually doing it very well at the moment. But equally, there does seem to be a headwind, particularly from the wealth managers who have historically been quite strong backers of this particular subsector and this asset class. The issue that you have with private equity in general is it's an expensive asset class, fee levels tend to be quite high. And then when you go down the kind of fund of funds routes and put another layer of fees on top, then those look-through costs can be quite prohibitive. Now, the private equity guys will say, well, it's an expensive asset class and actually look at the results. The long-term numbers are strong. You know, you you get what you pay for type thing. But if you're a wealth manager and you have to disclose your look-through costs to your ultimate client, then that can be a slightly difficult conversation to be had. So that seems to be the kind of headwind that the subsector faces. Okay, so on that note, I think that brings us to the end this week. Thank you very much, as always, for your time, Simon. Look forward to seeing what happens next week. I think it's fair to say you're bringing out one of your monthly reviews of the sector next week, and it'll be interesting to give us some interesting ideas to look back over the first nine months of this year, which has been, I would say, very interesting this year. A lot of changing winds out there, headwinds and tailwinds from different month to month. So we look forward to having that conversation next week. That's great. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.